All right, welcome to our continuation of our study of Mark here. We, last week we finished chapter 5, if you recall. We, we spent a lot of time on Jesus healing uh, the woman uh, who was, uh, had the discharge of blood. And then we talked about Jesus also raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. Of course, two miracles there. Uh, the commonality, I just what, kind of what I focused on, some of you call, remember both of them, there was this element about Jairus' words to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. We talked about that. And then Jairus has also requested, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well. We talked about that What in the Greek, that word, it's sozo, to be made well. But it's more than just being made this physical wellness. There's, there's an aspect of save to it. So sozo then in this wider sense is, is seen, you know, really not only the, it's, a, it's a physical healing, but then it's also um, rescue from sin, death, the forces of evil, and all that is opposed to God's gracious reign and rule. So, and then we saw that, that, that also there was another aspect of this faith that was with it. It was their faith. It was the woman's faith, Jairus' faith. They knew who Jesus was and what he could do. So, uh, the big, big key last week. So, and it shows that then this faith in Jesus then is the key to being uh, made sozo, right? Sozo, be made well to be saved. And it's our faith. Full salvation comes in faith in Jesus here. Also, uh, it showed that Jesus is just not this magician exerting this power just of making people a healer. But that's what the crowds were kind of, that's why they were, were drawn to him. It's kind of this, but you know, really what it ultimately shows that Jesus is the very Lord of Israel who came to bring people and all peoples uh, salvation and this salvation issuing peace. So that's what we covered last week. So today, let's get deep in, we're trying to get, I'm going to kind of get through Mark 6 here. Um, we're not going to be able to finish the whole thing, but three things. Uh, we're going to start out with Jesus being rejected in his own town of Nazareth. We'll look at that. Then we'll jump into Jesus then sending out his 12 apostles. And then we're going to take this kind of interesting t- look at uh, what happens with John uh, the Baptist, the death of John the Baptist. Um, but before we do, why don't we go ahead and open with our invocation in the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, we turn to uh, Mark chapter 6 here. You see the title, um, Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. Um, see, kind of this section is going to kind of begin positively and then it ends negatively. And again, it's going to portray this increasing resistance to Jesus. But now we see it's even in his hometown. Um, up to this point, we've seen some other negativity going on with Jesus. Recall in Mark three twenty-one, we even saw it in his own family, a little bit concerned about his, quote, mental stability. In Mark three twenty through 21, we read that when he went home, Jesus, when Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So we kind of see his own family here, kind of this negatively going on. But then number two, we call the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, when uh, they, they then uh, make the allegation that Jesus is in fact possessed with Beelzebul, the devil. We saw that in Mark three, twenty-two through 30. But now, okay, now he's coming to his hometown. We're going to see a little bit different to resistance to Jesus. But now they're not too concerned about those two issues. But we're going to see them concerned about his background. And that now who is this Jesus claiming to be? So that's kind of the concern we're seeing in here. So what we'll do then is read through. And what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you all, this Mark's version of Jesus rejected as Nazareth is a little 
little tighter. And, and so what I think we'll do is we'll read Mark, then we'll go look at the story in Luke. But I don't want to spend our time on Luke because Luke's is really long. But I want to hear the whole story from Luke and then we'll come back to Mark and kind of go line by line if that's all right with you all. So maybe a little bit of much of reading, but just for the context of looking through this. So let's read uh, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. Okay? So here we go. He, he, which is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Okay, so that's what we're going to cover today. But... Let's just, for purposes of kind of looking at this in depth, if you could turn to Luke 4. Again, I'm going to read this just to kind of see the big picture here, too. Mark gives us a little more to chew on, then we'll come back to it. So it's Luke 4, starting with verse 16. Okay, so Luke writes, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Okay? They, just real co- comment, uh, Jesus didn't go in there and pick a scroll, right? So they gave him the scroll. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So this next is coming from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physicians, heal yourself. What we have heard of you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many um, widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephyrath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away." Okay, a little bit bigger picture, but let's kind of focus on what Mark does. Um, just interesting here with this story, uh, this, this is um, Dr. Veltz in his commentary talks about this. I think it's kind of worth noting here. So back there, this is this, we can see kind of an honor and shame culture, okay? And Dr. Veltz writes this, like everything else in antiquity, honor was a limited good. If someone gain, gained... Someone else lost. 
to be recognized in his own town for his prophetic wisdom and his holy man's deeds of power meant that honor due to other persons and other families in Nazareth was diminished. Claims to be more than one's appointed share of honor determined by birth thus threatened others and would eventually trigger attempts to cut the claimants down to size. That dynamic emerges in this passage, okay? And that's what Jesus notes honor here. So that, that's the context of this, this honor and shame culture that's going on. So I wanted to bring that up at the beginning here. All right, so think of it in this cultural context of honor and shame culture. And we see that today in various, uh, in, in Japan, you know, kind of have these honor and shame cultures, some in the Middle East still today. So, okay, verse 1 then. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, Mark doesn't say Nazareth, but we see it in Luke, so clearly it's in Nazareth. Um, came to his hometown. So I did print out another little map, just real quick. So what's going on here? So if you recall before, so two stories before, we talked about the man that was demon-possessed, and Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern side, which was Gentile country. We talked about that. Then he comes back over. So he goes from the um, east back to the west. He goes to Capernaum. And you can see on your map, it's just kind of right to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was where he was when he healed the woman who was bleeding and then uh, where he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. So that's where, So now then it says when he left, uh, that was, he's now headed uh, south then down to Nazareth, where you can see that is. So this is where it's taken place. This is Jesus' hometown. So as it says, uh, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country there. Or that was when he went, the man, excuse me, he went away there and came to his hometown. So it was coming from Capernaum to Nazareth, as you can see on the map. So this is where we are. So um, he came to, this is obviously where he was brought up. Luke says that. Um, But Mark adds that the disciples went along. If you recall, the last uh, pericope reading we had when he healed Jairus' daughter and the woman bleeding, it was just three disciples that were with him. But now Mark adds, it appears that now all the twelve or with Jesus on this trip. And I think that that fits right, because as we'll see, right after we finish this, we'll talk about Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. So they're now with him. Everybody's with him, okay? So come to his own hometown. We go to verse 2. What happens? Again, we see this as we've seen before, that he goes into the synagogue to teach, and it was on the Sabbath. So we can assume maybe they arrived on Friday, Friday evening, then now in the synagogue on a Saturday. And what does he do? He begins to teach. Now, if we, as we saw Luke, we saw how this proceeded. Um, Jesus shows up. The rulers of the synagogue allow him to teach, obviously. Um, he gets the, the, the scroll, the Isaiah. He reads a passage. And then he showed how this ancient prophecy was now being fulfilled through him. We saw in Luke that the people were kind of first pleased with the gracious words of Jesus, yet they wondered. That's when they started wondering. This is Joseph, the son of, this is Joseph's sons, who's just a carpenter. And then Jesus keeps going on and impresses them, warns them against unbelief. Whereupon then at that point, the, the, his own, the crowd and the synagogue really turns against him. And recall what they did. They, wanted, they ran him out to a cliff and wanted to throw him off. But of course, Jesus miraculously gets out of there. But I think that's the background for this hostility. Mark just gets right into the hostility uh, right off the back. So right when he begins to teach in the synagogue, uh, we see this. Because we see here in 6.2... And when many heard him, they were astonished. Okay, the English is a little bad translation. It's, it's this explesanto or expleso in the Greek. And really, it's, they were kind of amazed or to strike with panic. So it's really a strong verb. I think it's really what's showing as opposed to just astonished. They became very upset. 
to strike with panic. So they were the people right off the bat when hearing him, they become very upset. In verse 2. And then there's three kind of questions that are asked we see in, in 2. Where did this man get these things? Okay. Uh, I think it's, 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 when you read it in context, this is derogatory. Where is he getting these things? This ordinary man who they knew so well. Now he's doing these, we're hearing of these extraordinary things that he's doing. This, this, is, this is beyond him. This can't be right. So that's what this means. Where did this man get these things? Kind of derogatory. Two, they ask, what is this wisdom given to him? Wisdom here is kind of refer, referring to the teaching of Jesus that they've heard about. Um, but it's very interesting. These people really cannot bring themselves to think that Jesus knows this on his own by his divinity. But thinking, I think, probably here is that, you know, where did he learn this? Someone must have given it to him. And he's saying only what someone else has told him. And that's kind of the construction of the Greek here. Having been given, one commentator says, the agent behind this participle is indefinite and is not referred to God by these questioners. So uh, Dr. Linsky really thinks they're not thinking, was this given to him by God, but somebody else, okay? So that's the second question they're thinking. Again, these are all very derogatory. And then the third we see is, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Kind of translated, really, such great works of power. Of course, this is in, in the sense of the miracles that he's done. These people have been hearing this. We know that news has really traveled. Um, I think that they do know that this is happening, or they haven't re- really seen it. But they're hearing about it, so they're admitting that something's happened. Um, but up until this point, we really don't know that Jesus had done many miracles in this area. But, again, presumably they've heard of them, okay? So I think it's strange here we see that they, they admit Jesus' wisdom and works of power, yet they still become hostile because they just really cannot solve the mystery as to how their own townsmen obtain these gifts. And we'll see this more as we continue reading. So these people are... I think they're, they're questioning. It's this honor culture again. They're thinking here. They're thinking, look... What counts in our society is your family of origin. Where are you in society? You come from a higher family or lower? Jesus clearly comes from the lower. Okay? So they're in this honor culture. Their blood relations, of course, group, honor, who, who your family is or like. And that's what they're thinking of here when they're seeing and hearing Jesus. And, of course, Jesus doesn't have this, as we'll see in verse 3 here. So three derogatory questions right off the bat. Uh, Verse 3 then, and here's where it gets deeper, right? Analyzing this. What do they say here in verse 3? Is not this the carpenter? Number one, Jesus' former vocation, right? The son of Joseph, a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. So that's number one. He's only a carpenter. Number two, he's only the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters were here with us. So again, honor culture. So now we're seeing what this derogatory is even further. We saw in verse 2 where they say, and many were heard him, were astonishing, where did this man? So what does it mean by this man? This man who's only a carpenter? This man who's a relative of Mary? Now the brothers, so their concept of this, this is just some man like we are, who lived with us, his relatives are still him, they're just like the other low lives in the town of Nazareth. So they know him very well. They did not see anything when he was younger there doing this stuff, now he's gone and he's come back and he's allegedly doing this. So I think they can't just really comprehend uh, this astonishing activity, which started when he left Nazareth. Just a few comments here about this carpenter. He's just a carpenter. So they're calling, of course, his teaching into question. So during Jesus' time, a carpenter, also known as a craftsman, they worked in stone or wood. 
They were often itinerant kind of travelers. They would go all around the areas, just not staying in one area because uh, what commentators are saying, they could not make a living really in one place. So they were kind of rogue travelers, these carpenters. Uh, So since they were traveling, they couldn't stay at home and protect their own family, their women, this honor. They were often then considered shameless persons lacking a sense of what the community values. So that's this derogatory, and they suggest a carpenter. That's kind of what they're thinking, okay? So again, carpenter, that wasn't anything of honor. It was actually to be a carpenter could have been seen as shame, shameful job. Okay, that's the first allegation against Jesus, just a carpenter. Second, this is very interesting. So they, they say the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. Um, very interesting. I think seen it two-way. These are just lowly people, Mary. Okay, but who's missing here? Um, and again, this is speculation. They admit Joseph. So... Some of the commentaries see this maybe as possibly a slur on Jesus' parentage. By admitting Joseph here, what they're doing is they're intentionally calling into question whether Jesus has a legitimate father. and They're casting kind of aspirations on the circumstance of his conception, okay? Of course, we understand what's going on, right? Right? But... You know, it's just where don't mention Joseph because I think there's this negative possible point they're trying to make that Jesus is illegitimate. I don't know. That could be the case, one commentator say. Um, But in fact, this was the same accusation, and we'll see it, well, in John, in John 8.41, where the Jews say to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immortality. So, interesting note, why some think that Joseph's name would be left out of there, calling into question that, who is Emma. Okay. And then they also say, are not his sisters here with us? The sisters aren't named. Possibly they've been married or whatever, but they had been, they had been present there too, so they really know these people know Jesus' family. Okay. So that's... Uh, another, I think, could be seen as derogatory here to Jesus. And then what happens then... In 6.3, we see, and they took offense at him, okay? This word offense, actually, in the Greek, it's called scandalizo. That's where we get our English word, scandalize. It's to stumble or trip over someone or something. So this, you know, this, they were, they were, this was scandalous, okay? That's what's going on there. He took offense at him. Um. But Jesus does not give offense. Rather, the, the people take offense at his words and actions. I think the study note does a good job on this. We see, um, took offense. Consequently, nothing else is, let's see, took offense. Jesus did not give offense. Rather, the people took offense at his words and actions here. So it's, it's all them here. And again, we saw in Luke, they were so offended, right, that what they eventually try to do, they try to throw them off the cliff at the edge of town. So Jesus' neighbors were skeptical because of their prior acquaintance with him and his family. Familiarity breeds contempt. We've heard that before, right? Okay. Any questions up until this point? Pretty straightforward. Verse 4 then, well, so what does Jesus do? He knows what's going on clearly, right? And he says to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Somewhat a parable, small tiny parable here. We've talked about parable. But certainly, don't, don't be fooled by this. Jesus is not being tactful here. He's not being diplomatic or sensitive. Uh, sensitive in this response. Um, what Dr. Veltz writes is this was seriously insulting, posing the possibility that outsiders, people not of his village or family, are better able to judge the honor of a prophet than those who know him best. So it's going against this honor culture. Jesus, this is a very uh, straightforward response, not tactful. 
So what we're seeing here, clearly Jesus was just saying that a prophet is more honored away from his hometown by his own native town. Another thing I think that's important with this sentence is Jesus, who's he characterized? Okay, he's being characterized as just a carpenter, as just the son of Mary, and, and but Jesus then links himself with a prophet. And we see this later on. Jesus uh, uh, links himself with, with Elijah, and then especially he'll, he'll link himself with John the Baptizer. We've already seen that. In six, four, four, we'll see this here, and then we'll see it later in Mark too. So this is, this is when Jesus says this. He's clearly saying that he is the true coming of God. And again, that's consistent with what he read when we saw in Luke, um, the reading uh, from, Isaiah, uh, from Isaiah. But the more familiar people are with the prophet, the less likely they will believe that he is a prophet and esteem him accordingly. Okay. 6.5 then. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Um, Mark, okay, there are two ways I think we can look in this. Uh, One, Mark kind of explains this ability because afterwards the people rose up and thrust Jesus out of the city and wanted to throw him off a cliff. Um, But the LSB note, and that's one of the commentators said that that's, why he couldn't do more mighty work there because they ran him out. Uh, the study note takes a little uh, different take on it. If you have your Lutheran study Bible, it says, Jesus was fully capable of performing miracles in Nazareth. He had one and two, yet he chose not to give any signs of his divinity to those who scoffly dismissed him. Jesus' miracles were gifts he freely gave, not proofs demanded of him. Two takes on this. But it does say he, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That could have been on that Friday before the Sabbath when all the, this took place. And then what does Jesus do in, in verse 6? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Unbelief, the townspeople reject Jesus for who he is and what he says. Clearly they were rejecting that this can't be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that this is now God in the flesh. I think we can see here, uh, blood is thicker than water, I think in a negative sense in this this story. What they knew of Jesus as town folks and relatives um, really comes before Jesus' words and work. So this is showing this unbelief that's still happening in spite of his mighty word and his mighty works, even his own hometown did not believe him. Study note does a good job of wrapping this up. Two very different astonishments stand side by side. Jesus' teaching amazed his hometown neighbors, yet their close-minded hard-heartedness leaves Jesus amazed. We see similar contrasts Today, as people experience so much goodness from God and yet remain unthankful and unbelieving. But Jesus did not retaliate or write people off even when they scornfully dismissed him. He took the world's rejection and through his sacrificial death reconciled all people to God. All right. Any questions or follow-up looks on here that you have? That I- um, it seems like, you know, when he says astonishment, it seems like there's two groups of people, a small group, that are observing what's going on, and then a, a bunch of knuckleheads that are observing it, but they don't want to believe what's going on. Yeah. Could be. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And clearly, as we saw in Luke, there was enough of the non-ones that wanted to see. They wanted to throw them off a cliff. So, Yeah, because they, can't, they don't know where you got the wisdom from, and that's, if, that's part of their problem. They right. don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to believe their eyes because it says, how can such mighty works be done by his hands? Right. I mean, that's, that's, so when people say, hey, I have to see it to believe it, you know that's a lie too. Mm-hmm. And even people were, were seeing it, right? Other people were seeing it and still not believing it, right? The scribes and the Pharisees thought that he was doing it by the power of the devil. 
continuing rejection here. Any other further thoughts or anything else on that? I'm going to shut this door if you guys don't mind. I'm having a hard time hearing here. Yes, sir. I was just thinking it. it seems easy for me to understand how they might, um, in one sense, having seen him grow up, and then the change that came, um, I don't know how suddenly, but maybe maybe quite suddenly after he was baptized and went into the wilderness, and then just thinking, what in the world? We saw this him as a kid and, and doing his carpentry work. Yeah. Um, whereas these other ones, he was coming in and they'd never seen him before, and it might be in some ways easier for them to believe yeah. because it was just a new element and they, they didn't have that background and that links up exactly what he says, right? A prophet, is, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. I mean, think of people that you grew up with. I mean, go, yeah, you know. But, but do you think his childhood was really different than when he went into ministry? I mean, your, 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 talk, your character is set when you're little. So they saw some things in him, even as brothers and sisters. He may not have done the miracles, but yeah. they saw his character. Well, clearly, we knew he, he was without sin, right? What yes. child without sin? So, yeah, you would have to think that people would have said, gosh, there was something about this kid. We're not told of that, but I think that's probably good to think about. Yeah, because this has to really be done. You're, you're, you, you purposely have to be blind to, to reject Christ. That's, that's the thinking I'm thinking. I mean, I can understand salvation is a gift from God, but... The blindness is something you prefer to do. You want to be blind, you're going to be blind. You want to be. That's right. Mm -hmm. Chris, could you repeat that? I'm sorry. Well, I think that's right. Remember, we talked about the shame and honor culture where Dr. Velt set this whole thing up. Well, so you think in that culture, right? Your, your status in society is based on your family and, you know, are they wealthy and, you know, rulers? Are you just a mere peasant? And Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. We know from Scripture that when he went to Jerusalem, the Scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So they must have seen him as a nice young man. Yeah. But mm-hmm. now he's really upping the game. And who mm-hmm. does he think he is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Especially in the honor and shame culture. That's right. Yeah, Remember but you d- say when someone's honor goes up, someone else's have to diminish. I mean, you think about that. They're like, we're not going to let this guy who's a carpenter, son of a carpenter and marry have this so that's right mm-hmm. okay but what about in our culture where we got like the kardashians you know a bunch of dodos and then they're all of a sudden up in fame and fortune <laughs> we're not so class conscious oh. because we've got oh. abraham lincoln even ronald reagan it came from humble beginnings yeah true so yeah I, I don't think we have quite that honor shame culture but yeah but that, isn't that interesting who, who does rise to the top in the United States? I mean, I, I know that we've got great leaders and stuff and people that have worked hard, but... We still have graduates of Harvard and Yale. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they have. They have, yeah. Good point. Any other comments on that? All right, Jesus rejected in his own town. Okay. So Jesus is now all upset and he's just going to give up, right? No. What does he do here? So he went about, we see at the end, he went about among the villages teaching. Remember, that's what Jesus does. That's the beginning of his ministry. He's teaching, okay? So he goes on and he's going to go and he teaches. 
And now this falls right. This is, this is not kind of a new break. So this, this happens. He's out teaching. And then now right here, he's also doing another thing. He's sending out the 12 um, apostles. So this actually kind of corresponds. We already talked about when kind of commissioning him early on who they were. But now the disciples here have been with Jesus. They've been deeply involved with his ministry. And, and actually, they're actually now part of this growing resistance. Okay, So I think there's, there is this real danger of participation for them as well. They're linked here. Um, so now Jesus is going to send them out. So let's read about this and we'll come back through it. Okay, so then Jesus, we see in verse uh, six or so chapter six, verse seven, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. All right. So we should all start wearing sandals, right? I'll get into that here in a minute. Okay, let's look at this here. Verse 7 here, called the twelve. We talked about the twelve when he commissioned them earlier. Okay, and he began to send them out. Send. Okay, I talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again. This, This word send in the Greek is apostello. Sound familiar? That's where we get the English word apostle. They're sent. And this, this verb actually means more than just send, as I talked about. It's really sending with a commission, okay? So this is a movement outward here. This sending is a movement outward to spread the news about Jesus. Um, at this point, the commentators aren't sure that this is the, the ministry is to the non-Jews at this point, um, but don't know. But they are being sent out. All right. Um, also, and they said the Greek it says begin to send. Could be some theological significance here. The, uh, the use of begin connotates the sending out with a commission. Then that continues after the Jesus's death, resurrection, and then his ascension, which then lines up kind of nice with the end of Mark, Mark 16, 14. There is the Great Commission in Mark. We also know it in Matthew 28, right? Sending out. Sending out. So it's to begin to send. So it's going to be a continuation. Two by two. Uh, I don't know there's a lot of significance to this. Some com- One commentator is saying uh, it was common to travel in pairs because it was dangerous travel. Also, it could be because the, uh, of a, being a witness in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 required at least two credible witnesses to testify. So that could be why two. So don't really know, but he said send them out two. When you have two people then going to talk about Jesus, maybe it gave him more credibility per uh, Deuteronomy. I don't know. I didn't find anyone said that there was any connection to Noah's Ark two by two, but don't know. But isn't but that was Paul did what did right? Paul and Barabbas, Barnabas rather went out two by two. I mean, they they always went yeah, or yeah. pairs. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. They do do pairs. Oh, yeah. Okay. So then, what happened? What do they do now? We see this in now. Jesus gave them. Authority over unclean spirits. Now, clearly we know, we've already studied this, clearly Jesus has authority over unclean spirits, right? How many stories have we already heard about Jesus casting out demons? We've seen that a lot. Uh, This clearly is part of Jesus' mighty work, his authority over demons. So Jesus is what we've seen so far as teaching, of course, but then his authority in these two areas, healing the sick and... um, and, and having authority over the demons, right? And I'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. 
So you know, he gives them authority over unclean spirits. Um, the study note had an interesting note here. Uh, Jesus had appointed the twelve. Then they were with him for some time, learning from his teaching and observing how he exceeded, he exercised authority. Now he gives them a more active role in his ministry. Chief among the powers he gave them is the authority to cast out demons. So we see that here. Um, but in uh, Mark, I did talk about this, and we were kind of talking about it at the commission in Mark 3, 14 through 15. We've already seen this in verse 14. It said, any appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now we know why they're named apostles, right? Apostolos. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach, number one, and to have authority to cast out demons. This is so that he might have authority. So that's what he did at the beginning. He pointed these 12 so they might have authority. And now we see here, boom, okay. He said we was going to do this. Now he gives them this authority here. Okay. Uh, verses 8 and 9. This is interesting here. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except what? A staff. They could take a staff. No bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Uh, why? I guess. Um, not a lot of good stuff. Uh, Commentators speculate to, to teach the apostles absolute dependence upon their Lord who sends them out. Jesus will provide for them. The study note here says the same thing. The apostles were to depend wholly upon the kindness of others and the provisions of God. Given the shabby treatment Jesus just received in Nazareth, this command must have sounded quite perilous. <laughs> right? <laughs> Hmm. Okay, so that's maybe why here. Only a staff, the Greek word is rabdom. Uh, this is staff, staff just, it's, it's a walking stick, okay? It's not, I was starting, what, some people think this was a club so they could defend themselves. No, it's just a, a walking staff. And it's no new staff, okay? Matthew kind of talks about this a little differently. Could be seen as a contradiction, but really Jesus is saying, the staff you have, that's the staff you're supposed to take, okay? Don't go out and buy a new fancy one when you go into a bigger town, <laughs> all right? The disciples are to go as they are, with such garments, sandals, and walking sticks as they have. They're not to take along bread, even a pouch into which to carry food or money or any other supplies. Um, it says that they were not to clothe, clothe themselves with two tunics, which again just means what you're wearing is enough. Um, I guess travelers, um, when they traveled, usually had two or mo- more and would wear them, two or more, not only to change or whatever, but also to wear when it got cold. But also two tunics was a style of dress adopted by persons of distinction. So, Chris, you're going to have to wear your two tunics next week. Style of dress, so, Okay. So again, all these directions, I guess, are not intended to inflict hardship necessarily on the disciples, you know, but to relieve them of all worry regarding their bodily needs. He who sends them out will provide for them in all respect, maybe to teach them complete trust in their Lord. Okay? Uh, Verses 10 and 11. And he said to them, Where, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. We remain there. Prohibits the twelve possibly from constantly moving about to maybe better places. Someone invites them in. Maybe it's not the, uh, as good as the Marriott Hilton. And then you know, when they get an opportunity to go in the Marriott, they go. No, when they are received in, you stay there. Okay. Um, when he, okay, then this next verse, this is the sandals. This is interesting. So, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. To shake off the dust from your feet is a great insult during this culture. Um, it indicates that the person is actually unwilling to be touched by others' touch. So, Jews returning to Israel often after travel abroad regularly shook off the dust of their feet. But here, actually, it's more than that. It's serving as a warning. You have rejected our preaching. Therefore, you and all that is yours are without the 
reign and rule of God, no salvation, and we will not be associated with that. So, again, this is a ritual here symbolizing God's judgment against those who reject the gospel, as if to indicate that the twelve should not even associate with the unbeliever's dust. Shake off your feet. Um, when he's talking, because really they're, they're fishermen, so they're normally they're barefoot. So now they're putting on sandals. So it's almost like he's saying you're going into unholy, unholy land or country or people almost because he's saying, remember when Moses goes up and, he's, and God tells him, take the sandals off your feet, you're on holy ground. Now, now they're going out and they're going to be preaching, but they're going to be preaching to people that are not holy yeah. and stuff like that. So I, that's, that's the impression I get yeah. from what they're saying. And certainly consistent with the, the ritualistic part about it, what the Jews yeah. did, right? Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. It doesn't say anything about their families when they left. Like, who would provide for th- those people? Yeah, you know, I, I don't when know. When the breadwinner goes away, I mean. You mean when they're going out, when they're yeah, staying? Yeah, when they're right? yeah. being commissioned and then they're leaving their families. Yeah. So the village or whatever would have to pick up. Mm. Well, I think it's number one, the Lord's going to provide for them too. Right. They go and, and when he's preaching, someone is listening and inviting them in and probably those people are taking care of them and feeding them, I think. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, have left family, right? That's exactly right. But a lot of the women are the ones that are supporting his ministry because that's the impression I get when you read the other part of the Gospels is the women in this culture, some of them have money because you see that at the crucifixion. They're they're supplying him. Mm -hmm. So it could be those women or it just could be people in the areas that are visiting, that are listening and, and, and hearing and believing and inviting them in to take care of them. So, true missionaries here, right? The first, the first missionaries of the of the New Testament. Um, that's right. Okay, we talked about uh, shaking off the dust. So then, what do they do? Then they get these instructions. So they went out. They go right. And what do they proclaim? They. Uh, proclaim that uh, people should repent. And this is the con- so this is the content of what they're preaching too, repentance. In Greek, it's metneo. That means uh, to change one's mind or purpose, to change the inner man. Okay, so this is a true. And, and I thought I would just kind of look in our confessions. Let's talk about that, what repentance means for us today. Won't get too much in it, but I just thought I'd read this. What is repentance? Because we talk about it a lot. And it was a good refresher for me, too. So in Article 12 of the Augsburg Confession, uh, we say this. It's written, Concerning repentance, it is taught that those who have sinned after baptism, okay, so this is for us. Uh, there's a big difference because before baptism, you know, we, we, you know you're not saved and this is all done, the gifts given to you, right? So your gift of faith and everything, the gift of justification. But now now repentance for us, and I'm talking to us here as believing Christians who have been baptized, we know. So if when you sin, when we sin, when I sin daily after my baptism, we obtain forgiveness of sins whenever they come to repentance and then absolution should not be denied them by the church. Here's what it means, though. Now, properly speaking, true repentance is nothing nothing else than to have one contrition and sorrow or terror about sin. Okay, that's the first part. And that's why when we hear the law, this is what we get, right? We, we, We hear about we have contrition and sorrow or terror about sin. And yet, at the same time, number two, we Christians... When we have this contrition and sorrow, we believe in the gospel and absolution that sin is forgiven and grace is obtained through Christ. Such faith, in turn, comforts the hearer and puts it at peace. Okay? 
Then, imp- then this is also important. Number three, then improvement should also follow, and a person should refrain from sins. For these should be the fruits of repentance, as John says in Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. So that's what repentance is. And you know, we do this in the divine service, right? At the beginning, we have a confession and an absolution. Now let me talk about this. When pastor does confession and absolution then for us, the main reason it is done is it's the absolution part. Okay? So, yes, your sins are forgiven in the divine service when we do a general confession absence, and your sins are forgiven, right? When we repent, when you repent to God. But, you know, when we, the church offers confession and absolution, like pastor does on Wednesday morning, it's not this super extra special deal that you're going to get more forgiveness, right? The emphasis is, is that if there's something bothering you that you've done, and, you know, we do the general Uh, You know, at the beginning of our liturgy, we do it, but you're still not hearing that absolution. This is the beauty of private confession and absolution. It's not that you're receiving more forgiveness. If there's a certain sin that's bothering you, you know, you just can't get out of your mind, it's wonderful to be able to go to the pastor in in complete confidentiality. And the pastor hears that you're... And he knows that you have... This contrite height. He knows that you're, you have contrition and sorrow. The beauty of private confession and absolution is that when pastor hears this, you have another person hearing this, and then he can turn and look to you and say, I've heard it all. And instead, by the command of Jesus, I forgive you all your sins. So it's this, it's this assurance of absolution that you've now told the pastor that, that's really bothering you. And the pastor's going to look in your eye and tell you, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And that's what this repentance. So we, we have a general confession of absolution on repentance. We do repent. But I just wanted to pull, put in this plug for a private confession absolution, that it is the absolution, the wonderful part about it that we hear. And that's what we believe in the Augsburg Confession. We have this, we have this um, contrition and sorrow or terror. But then what do we do at the same time? It, we, there's another aspect. We believe in the gospel. We believe that when we are repentant, that in the gospel, that absolution, that the sin is forgiven, and that the grace is obtained through Christ. So just a wonderful thing about our confession absolution. This is what we believe. And this is what repentance is. And in fact, this is what the disciples were preaching, which has this gospel element. And also, if you recall, at the beginning when I started this class, Jesus, if you want to turn to Mark one um, fifteen. So right after Jesus is baptized, right after Jesus is uh, Timpton, the temptation of Jesus. When Jesus begins his ministry in verse 14, what does he do? And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is, what is the gospel? It's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry. So that's why In our confessions, when we talk about repentance, it's the same thing. Repent and believe in the gospel. See? So that's what these disciples were preaching. Yes, Ellie. I'm too late probably to bring this up, but I'm uh, troubled by so little of our Christian faith, or so little of it is implemented, is put to put to practice is all I want to say and why why is that so why is our are you talking about repentance and in, in, in absolution or just our Christian faith in general I don't know take your pick yeah yeah <laughs> you know unfortunately as a vicar that's above my pay grade and in fact <laughs> <laughs> but and here's the thing yeah pastors more uh, better probably speaking of this but the thing is is 
when we die and we go to heaven, we get asked, we get asked Jesus. I guess someday we'll know. It's probably above pastor's pay grade too. We don't know, but we'll, we'll know someday. Mm-hmm. We do know someday, right? <laughs> That's something that you get to look forward to asking Jesus yeah. about. Okay, so I talked about repentance here. Let me just go a couple more here, here, and I think we can finish this up for the day, and then we'll get into the death of John the Baptist next week. Okay, so repentance. So that's what Jesus says at the beginning. That's his ministry. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay? And that's now what the disciples are doing. Verse uh, 13, them here. And they cast out many demons. Okay? And anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So cast out demons. That's what they did. They did exactly what Jesus gave them to do. They cast, cast out of unclean spirits. So they, they exercised the same power that Jesus had. His power had been extended to them. Um, this is interesting. I talked with Pastor a little about this morning. It's a little confusing. With oil, many were sick and healed to them. Um, our commentators don't say a lot about this because unfortunately nobody really... They're not committed because no one knows 100% actually what's going on here. Um, the first thing is, is we know that Jesus does not seem to engage in this practice of anointing with oil. Nowhere is it a command of Jesus to do this. They do that. Um, just looking back at it, it was a common, t- common practice in the ancient world. Customary practices where oil was placed on to soothe the patient. Um, of course, certainly here, Mark's not writing that p- uh, putting oil on someone is the agent or responsible for the cure. Okay, um, We do see this in James 5, 14 through 16. Uh, James writes, is, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. Okay, So we do have this in. Um, this anointing in James uh, seems ceremonial, given the emphasis of prayer. That may be going on here. We just don't know. Um, Dr. Just, in his commentary about when oil today, because we do do it today. In fact, we have a rite for it um, in, 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 in our liturgical stuff, where it says upon when, when visiting the sick or something, it's, just, it's not a, a necessary thing, but you can. The pastor of put oil on his right thumb, the pastor anoints the sick person on the forehead, saying, Almighty God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given you the new birth of water and the Spirit, and has forgiven you all your sins, strengthen you with his grace to life everlasting. So now I think maybe the oil done is in remembrance of your baptism. Um, So again, but I think what the importance here, and I'll close with this, uh, is not to necessarily get focused on the oil, but it was done. I think what the focus really, the dominance ear, the the dominant theme is now Jesus has given the disciples what he's been doing. He has, the disciples now also have dominance over this sickness and the demons. And now, just like Jesus said that, he's given then to the disciples to go on and carry this out. So, uh, casting out demons and healing the sick. And that's what... Uh, the study notes, conclusion, I think it does a, does a good take on this. The disciples multiply Jesus' healing and revealing ministry, building on the foundation laid by John the Baptist and anticipating their own ministries, which will bear full fruit after Jesus' ascension. Even as Jesus sends the twelve, he anticipates that not everyone will welcome the gospel and is still true today. Nevertheless, God unfailingly opens hearts and doors to their ministry, and he promises to do the same until the end of time. All right, any further questions? Yeah, the, uh, could the oil be, the oil could be olive oil, so, because remember they had to crush it, so it's, this is almost going back to the crucifixion and stuff like that, and then also the light in the tabernacle with olive oil, so isn't it kind of ceremonial or something that has some meaning? Could be, yeah, uh, absolutely, thing yeah, yeah. That, hey, because you crush it. Yeah, yeah, Pastor Sherman this morning talked about that, yeah, yeah. Again, we don't don't know a lot about it, but yeah, yeah. But I think the point is, as even this is done, we can't we can't say that oh, we have to do an oil today or number two that the oil is the real magical power, right? So we just kind of got to stay with this. But yeah, there were custom and 
other things, but we just don't know enough about. Did you have a question? I'm thinking of Psalm 23. Thou anointest my head with oil. Yeah, And right. then I think of David being anointed with oil when he was still yeah. a shepherd boy. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. so can what's we customary? adopt the concept when we say the Psalm 23 for ourselves? Mm-hmm. God has showed us favor and yeah. that we're set apart. Yeah, and I think that ties nicely in with Dr. Just when he talks about anointing today, that it, it really is in a remembrance of your baptism and who you are and as you've been adopted into Christ's family. That's right. So good. Okay, so I believe I'm a little bit over there. Thank you all very much. Next week we'll get into a very fascinating story about the death of John the Baptist. So the Lord be with you. Amen.